following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. In this church history sermon series, we take a look at people and events that still speak to our time and place. For more information, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's page number 996. In the Bible there in the seat in front of you, normally I have to ask you to turn to a passage, we read it right away, I'll give you a second to turn there and then we read it together and then pray. I'm not going to actually read it at the beginning this morning, we are going to begin in prayer, so if you will, bow your heads with me and we will pray. Jesus, thank you for our opportunity to be together this morning, to think about your word, to encourage one another, to sing these songs, just to rehearse truth. It, sometimes we just forget how much... We are bombarded by the lies of this world, by the deceit, by the temptations, by the draw. And if nothing else, this time together as a family is here to remind us of what is real, what is constant, what is unchanging, what is pure and right. And so we are thankful for it. I pray as we begin both today's message and this new series here as we think through some moments, some people, some events from church history that you will use these stories from the past to show us biblical truth and then to encourage us to live differently going forward. Help us to, to want to be completely faithful to your word and completely dependent on it no matter what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin by saying it's um, good to be back. If you were not clear as to why I was not up here for the majority of the month of May. It was because Jamie and I, it was our turn to work children's ministries, and so we were back in the back. I will say, with the exception of one family sitting in this room this morning, all your kids were great. <laughs> Just to make you go home now insecure. Uh, actually, it was the coast ends. It's fine. It's, uh, <laughs> Carmen's like, you asked for that one. It, it, it was actually a lot of fun. You know, the kids back there, they are, without any joking, without uh, trying to pander in any way, shape, or form, you guys are obviously doing some good things at home with your kids. Uh, they are excellent kids. They were, at least for us. For the rest of you who are like, we had them last month, and they were not excellent. Sorry, I don't know what your issue was. But uh, they were really good, and I can tell that they're learning. In fact, um, I got to last Sunday, I wasn't with the four- and five-year-olds. I was in the other classroom, and uh, I was really impressed. I think some of them can definitely handle being in here based on just what they know of the scriptures, uh, probably better than even I was at that age. So, and that's saying something. Um, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. I also want to thank uh, Caleb, Isaac, and Jordan for preaching. Jordan, commend you in particular for bringing people in by the busloads. Never done that before, so kudos to you. Uh, where are we doing? Uh, what are we doing right now? Well, it's the game plan now that we're done with the mark. I want to just walk you through what what. Uh, our plan is and where we're at and why we have chosen the things that we have chosen between now and September. Uh, we finished Mark in April, and we are going to begin a new sermon series on the book of Galatians on September 11th. That'll be the uh, launch Sunday for our two-service format, and so we're going to kind of coincide everything together. And if you're like, why are we waiting all the way until September to start a new sermon series? Well, if you don't know the answer to that question, you're either new or you don't pay very good attention here at Cornerstone, because as soon as summer hits, and I wrote this in my notes before I looked in the room this morning, people begin to take off, okay? Cornerstone, even though we live in a vacation town, we tend to take our summers very uh, 
enjoyably, and we go and travel. And so we have learned over the years that you never start anything new in the summertime. So we're going to wait until September and the launch of the new services to start our study of Galatians. And so in the meantime, we're going to do a few different things this summer just because we don't normally have the chance to do this stuff. Once we get into a study, we're in it for years on end, as you all know by now. Uh, so we wanted to take advantage of this time. We're going to begin this summer, we, we began it already in May, by having some of the elders who don't get a lot of opportunities up here to come and preach to you. So you got to enjoy that last month. Now, uh, beginning today and through the next uh, five Sundays, six Sundays in total, we're going to do a series that is sort of themed around church history, and I'll talk more about that specifically in a moment. Then on July 17th and 24th, we're going to take those two Sundays to say goodbye to the Kessners. 17th, Jared will be preaching, kind of sharing his heart with us on the 24th is our big send-off service, so please make plans, if at all possible, to be here for that. And then after that, Chris will be preaching, I believe, on the book of Ruth. Yep, okay. If he changes on that, that's fine, but that's what I think he's aiming for right now. That'll happen um, July 31st and three Sundays in August, and then I will come back up at the end of that and kind of begin to prepare us for the transition that'll be coming a couple weeks from there. So that's kind of the game plan. We've got a busy summer ahead. I hope it will be a blessing to you. Now, in relation to this church history series that we're starting today, we have never done this before. Um, I have taught on church history during a like, course seminar or during like when we used to have Sunday school. Uh, I would do it during that format as would others, um, but we've never tried to turn it into a sermon series. So let me explain to you exactly what we're trying to do. I love church history. I mean, I love history in general, but I, I really love church history. And for some of you, you're probably sitting there going, why, why do you love history? It's just boring stories of names and dates that don't matter to anyone or anything. It's just pointless. I would very much disagree with you on that. If all you have ever done with history in general or with church history specifically is learned names and dates, then yes, it was probably pointless to you. But, but the beauty of history is that it allows you to understand why things are the way they are right now. And I think there is a ton of value in that. One of my little side hobbies over the past uh, few years, as um, probably many of you know, has been studying local history. Uh, just trying to focus very specifically in on the Hampton Roads area to understand it better and why it is like it is. For example, uh, some of you will know the answer to this question because I've shared it before, but don't say it out loud just for my sake. You know, why is it that we don't have counties here? I grew up in North Carolina. We lived, I lived in the town of Goldsboro, but that was in Wayne County. We don't have a county here. If you've ever filled out any form online and it goes to have you pick the county, it's just the city of Virginia Beach. Well, the reason we don't have counties around here is because Norfolk was greedy. That's it, right? 1960s, 1950s, Norfolk was expanding, expanding, annexing land from two neighboring counties, Princess Anne County to the east and Norfolk County to the south. Virginia state law says that cities can annex land from any county that they touch, but they cannot take land from other cities. And so the residents of Princess Anne County said, we don't want them taking our land anymore. The residents of Norfolk County said, we don't want them taking our land anymore. And the only way to stop them was to become a city. And so in 1963, the residents of Princess Anne County became the city of Virginia Beach, and the residents of Norfolk County voted to become the city of Chesapeake, and so what you see today, these huge, huge cities, they were the counties that used to exist way back when, and all the little communities that were originally a part of those counties all got lumped together, and so Kimsville and Pungo and 
uh, you know, Great Bridge, South Norfolk, all these places that used to be independent little communities all became one big part of a city, and that's why it is like it is today. That's, that's neat, just to know that, understand why the area is like it is. Or here's another one, uh, specifically to South Norfolk. We have a couple of South Norfolk folks around. Why, why is, uh, yeah, very rarely do you hear cheering for South Norfolk, but there you go. Um, why, why is South Norfolk like it is today? If you've been up there, it's, you know, Miss Evelyn, Evelyn Virus used to be here 95 years old, and she has lived in Hampton Roads since... I don't know how long, long time, very long time. She grew up in Georgia but moved here and was a school teacher in the Chesapeake and Norfolk uh, school regions. And uh, I got to sit down with her one day, and she lived in South Norfolk, back when South Norfolk was the happening place in Hampton Roads. It was, you know, the, the new neighborhoods, and it was beautiful, and people were moving there out of Norfolk. And, and she remembers the transition when Norfolk County was becoming the city of Chesapeake. And she told me a story one day. It was fascinating. She said when, when all of that was happening there in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, the new region of Norfolk County that was beginning to grow is what we would think of today as Great Bridge. At that time, Great Bridge was like the outlying new neighborhoods and developments that were coming in. For those of you who live in Great Bridge, you're like, wait, that's... <laughs> Things have changed in Chesapeake, but back then that's what it was. And there was a push by certain people within Norfolk County to have the new county or city seat be there in Great Bridge. But all the folks in South Norfolk didn't like that. They wanted the city seat to be in South Norfolk, which made sense because it had been the primary place of residence and commerce for uh, Norfolk County for some time. So there was this internal fight between these two warring uh, factions, and they're all trying to move, and it's a lot of politics and a lot of gamesmanship. In the end, who won? Anyone who lives in Chesapeake knows? Great Bridge. If you go down Cedar Road, in the middle of neighborhoods is the Chesapeake uh, City Hall, just sitting there. Miss Evelyn still somewhat despisingly refers to it as the Taj Mahal. Uh, you could tell that she was of the South Norfolk crowd. Um, but uh, once Great Bridge had won that battle and the city or the county of uh, or Norfolk County had become the city of Chesapeake, guess what the residents of Great Bridge who now had control of the city didn't care about anymore? The residents of South Norfolk. And so there was some bad blood that existed between those two communities. And as the city of Chesapeake pursued development over time, they put their efforts and money and focus everywhere but South Norfolk. And eventually South Norfolk began to fall into decline, and it is where it is today. And just now, in the last five to ten years, the city of Chesapeake is really beginning to take steps to repair some of that and come back and undo what they did. But there's a history there. You can't understand South Norfolk without understanding that political battle that occurred back in the 50s or 60s. Um, I could go on forever. Why does the Linhaven Inlet exist? Because a guy was tired of having to walk his canoe from what was at that point a lake out to the bay, and so he dug a ditch the width of a canoe to get his canoe through, and then a hurricane came in and washed it out, and we got an inlet out of it. That was not original. Uh, why is Willoughby Spit there? There was no Willoughby Spit in the 1600s, and then one night during a hurricane, the Willoughby family went to bed, and when they woke up the next morning, they had a whole bunch of land out in front of what used to be their beachfront property. Uh, the hurricane had washed it all up, which I always think if I lived there, I would go, I don't want to live on something that a hurricane built in a night because they could take it away in a night if it came in just the right way. There's all kinds of neat things that you can learn as you begin to study history just to understand why things are the way they are. And knowing the answer to those questions can be both fascinating, but it can also be really helpful in understanding particular details about 
well, just why things are. You know, same is true for church history. You know, why do we have all of these different denominations? Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Anglicans, Catholics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, why does the church tend to emphasize certain doctrines so much and other ones not seemingly as much? Uh, why do certain churches do particular things that other churches just don't do at all and sometimes would even say are absolutely wrong? You know, the answers to all of those questions have their roots, their answers in church history. And in many cases, understanding those answers can help you navigate, in some, some examples, the Christian life better. And so what we want to do with this series is we want to pick six people, topics, events, moments, whatever the case may be, from church history that will help you better understand yourself, uh, your Christian life, and potentially the church at large, or maybe Cornerstone specifically, better, you know, specifically as you know it today. However, it is important to note that we have not gathered this morning to hear a lesson on history. Now, this is one of the things that as we were talking about doing the series back in March, we were very um, uh, together on and kind of concerned about. It would be very easy to end up focusing on the history itself when what we have gathered together this morning to hear is the Word of God. History is not going to change your life. It may help you understand things better, but it doesn't change the heart. Only the Word of God changes the heart. And so since the very beginning, the idea has been that, that whatever topic or person or event we chose, we had to be able to directly tie that back to Scripture so that we could then preach that to you, encourage you from that, and hopefully apply it to ourselves and our lives. And so I'm not preaching church history this morning. Chris won't preach it the week after. Jordan, he's preaching again as well, uh, I think in July. He's not preaching it or June. Uh, we are all going to be preaching the scriptures, just using church history to do it. Does everyone understand what we're doing both today and for the next five Sundays? All right, let's begin. I decided to lead off our series, just because I like this guy a lot, with a mostly unknown second century heretic named Montanus. Okay, almost like Montana, but with a U.S. at the end, not an A, Montanus. Now, I'm just curious. I think I know the answer to this question. But outside of anyone in this room who has had any kind of like seminary training, is there anyone in here who knows anything about Montanus? Perfect. That's exactly what I was hoping for. You know, I, uh, I love me a good heretic every now and then. Heretics are very helpful, especially as you look through church history Heretics, when they come on the scene, they obviously cause a lot of problems and they tend to try to lead people astray. Sometimes they're successful to great extent, sometimes to lesser. But one of the benefits that heretics have provided to the church over the last 2,000 years is they provide the church with an opportunity to clarify and understand what it believes about certain things. Sometimes those things are very major doctrines that need to be addressed. Maybe the church just, especially in those early days of the spread of the gospel, they just hadn't taken the time yet to sit down and think about what a they believed on a particular issue. Sometimes they're kind of obscure or weird things. But regardless of the case, heretics are actually quite helpful to us because it forces us to be able to defend what it is we believe and why. Montanus was this kind of heretic, one who helped us clarify what we believe and why. Montanus himself was a man who lived in Asia Minor, which is what um, modern-day Turkey, for those of you who can picture that on the map, who lived sometime during the second century. I'd say 120 to 180. We don't have exact dates, but somewhere in there. 
And he specifically lived in a region of Asia Minor called Phrygia, which if you can picture Turkey on a map, put your finger right in the middle of the fat part there on the kind of the western side, and that's, that's Phrygia. That's where he lived. No one knows for sure uh, when he converted to Christianity, but apparently not too long after he had done so, he became dissatisfied with the carnality, the worldliness of the church that he was seeing, of the believers that he was interacting with, especially when he compared what they were saying and what they were doing to what he himself was reading in the New Testament. As he's looking at the lives of the apostles and saying, well, the, you know, Peter says this and Paul says this, but these guys over here are doing completely opposite. And he just, he became bothered. In fact, some people have referred to Montanus as one of the first Puritan movements within the church. Now, I don't know what the word Puritan brings up in your mind, what it conjures, but generally speaking in church history, when we talk about a Puritan movement, it's, it's a movement designed to purify the church, to get it back to what it originally believed and how it originally was living. And Montanus seems to have some of that in him. He sees worldliness. He wants to respond to get back to what they were doing. And in many points, he was very orthodox, very orthodox for his time on, on a number of issues. For example, he was a staunch opponent of infant baptism. He recognized that that was unbiblical and not the right way to go. The only believers should be baptized, and so you should wait until a person can make a profession of faith. Uh, he fought against Gnosticism, which is a whole other heresy. In fact, the book of Colossians is basically written against that particular heresy. So, so uh, Montanus would have been on Paul's side, so to speak, in the fight against Gnosticism. He defended the doctrine of the Trinity, which might seem really obvious and basic to us in some respects, but at the time they were still building out some of these doctrines, and so he's a early defender of the Trinity, as well as an early defender of what we would call the universal priesthood of the believer, which is a fancy way of saying that you don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor to go before God on your behalf. You can go directly to God yourself. Okay, That's the, the concept of the universal priesthood of the believer. So, so in all of these things, we would agree with him. We would say he was a, a, a great theologian, right on board with where we are. Unfortunately, though, there was one area where he was not so orthodox by a little. Montanus came to believe that he personally, personally, he himself, was the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit here on earth. Okay? So in other words, as he is there and he's defending things, he's talking to people, he believes that God the Holy Spirit has chosen him above all other people on the planet, all other Christians and believers, to speak truth and revelation to those around him. Uh, Eusebius, he is a Roman historian. He's known as the father of church history. Here is what he wrote about Montanus. A recent convert, Montanus by name, through his unquenchable desire for leadership, gave the adversary opportunity against him. And he became beside himself, and being suddenly in a sort of frenzy and ecstasy, he raved and began to babble and utter strange things, prophesying in a manner contrary to the constant custom of the church handed down by tradition from the beginning. Some of those who heard his spurious utterances, which is a phrase we should all use this week, at the time were indignant, and they rebuked him as one that was possessed and that was under the control of a demon, and was led by a deceitful spirit, and was distracting the multitude. And he stirred up besides two women, and filled them with, false spirit, with the false spirit, so that they talked wildly and unreasonably and strangely, like the person already mentioned. The two women that Eusebius is referencing here are women named Priscilla and Maximilla. If 
if Montanus views himself as the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit, these two women become like his chief prophets, okay? He tells them things, and they go out, and they prophesy as well on his behalf. And the three of them together began to propagate and spread a number of, of just heresies and false prophecies. For example, just a small handful, they all prophesied that the world would end there in the second century. We've heard that in our own time. They prophesied that the new Jerusalem that John saw in the book of Revelation was going to descend from heaven onto the town of Papuza. Anyone ever heard of Papuza? Nope, neither have I. Uh, on the town of Papuza, which is located there in Phrygia in central Turkey. And of course, they claimed to be a source of new revelation from God. They had the scriptures, but they were also going to be the, new, the source of new prophecy and new revelation. So if you wanted to know what God was saying, thinking now, or wanting from you now, you could come to them. Well, in case you're not familiar with this story or with history in general, the world did not end in the second century. Neither did the New Jerusalem descend. If you look at Google Maps, it is not there. And the rest of everything else they said in their prophecies and their revelations and utterances all proved to be untrue. Montanus was, of course, not the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit on earth. Priscilla and Maximilla were not his prophets. But, but despite all of this, there were a good number. I mean, it was enough that they became known, a good number of people who followed them and believed them. And even after their prophecies were proved untrue, continued to follow them, a good number of people became known as the Montanists. And Montanism, as it was known, became one of the earliest heresies of the church. Now, I've asked you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you will, please look there now. We're going to come back a little bit here in a moment. But I want to read Paul's words to Timothy here in verses 10 to 17. Timothy, remember, is a younger man than Paul. He is a man that Paul has taken under his wing as almost like a, a, a protege. Um, he's trying to train him, instruct him, encourage him in what it means to be a minister of Jesus Christ. And so in verses 10 to 17, he's giving him some instructions. He says, you, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching. You followed my conduct. You followed my aim in life. You followed my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You've even followed my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And if I just pause there, I'd say that Paul is really a bad salesman for being a minister of the gospel, is he not? Because it's not very encouraging at that point. But in verse 14, he begins to turn the conversation. He says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause here for just a moment and recognize what he is saying to Timothy here. He wants Timothy to continue in what he has learned and believed since his childhood. Now, 
You know, I, we just spent uh, the last month in with four and five-year-olds, and I would say, as a general rule, you generally don't want <laughs> your children to continue in the things that they do at that age, by and large. You want them to grow up. You want them to mature, to progress, to move on, and to better things, to more adult things, to mature things. But in this thing here, Paul doesn't want Timothy to move away from it at all, does he? He wants him to stay put as if there's nowhere else to go, as if there's nothing better he could move towards. Just, just continue what you learned from childhood, continue with what you've been acquainted with, and that is, as you can see here, the scriptures, the sacred writings. Stay put there. Don't move from those. Got it, Timothy? Great. But now here's the question. The question is why? Why shouldn't Timothy move on to bigger or better things? Why, why shouldn't he put uh, the scriptures past him and look for, for something else? Well, the answer to that question is found in the next two verses. Verses that many of us know very well, but I'm not sure, if we're going to be honest about it, I'm not sure that many of us have thought super deeply about them and have applied them consistently in our lives. Here's, here's what Paul gives as the reason why he shouldn't move on. Because all that scripture that he learned as a child, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why or what to what end? So that the man of God can be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, I, I want us to stop and just try to think very deeply about what Paul is saying here in verses 16 and 17. Sometimes things become so familiar that we quit paying attention. And I'm afraid that that has happened to us here in these verses in ways many of us are not even aware. Notice first that he says that the scripture, and he points out all of it, all scripture, is breathed out by God. There's a Greek word here, it's I can't say it. It means God breathed. God obviously doesn't have a body like us. He doesn't breathe air like us. So he's using a kind of a human attribute or characteristic to help us understand something about scripture. I can't talk without breathing. Oftentimes as the kids have grown up and they'd be choking on something, Jamie would say, are they choking? I go, no, they're making noise. As long as they're making noise, they haven't stopped having air flow through. We're good. You can't talk without air. And so as we talk, we're breathing out our words. And he envisions the scriptures as being like that for God. That the scriptures themselves are the very words of God coming from him out to us. There's a, a theological term we use here. It's the word inspiration. When we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, we're talking about the fact that these words, these 66 books of the Old and New Testament, are the words of God to us. Now, you've heard that so much that I bet most of you aren't even phased by that. But if you are holding a Bible in your lap at this moment, think about the fact that the eternal God of creation spoke words that you are holding. I mean, it's, it's really mind-blowing when you begin to stop and think deeply about this concept. But again, it's so familiar to us, we've just forgotten it. But, but he doesn't forget it. He, he emphasizes it to Timothy. The reason you shouldn't move on from this onto something bigger or better is there is nothing bigger or better. These are the words of God to you breathed out from him. Second, notice what he says the scriptures are good for, what they're profitable for. Well, that's for teaching, so explaining to you what is right or true, for reproof, explaining to you what is wrong, correction, 
fixing what is wrong when you identify it in your life, and then training in righteousness, sort of keeping you on the right path. So whether you need to know the right things or understand the wrong things or how to fix the wrong things or stay on the right path, whatever the case may be, what is it that gives you that ability, that gives you that knowledge? It's God's word. It's these words breathed out from him. And then third, notice the outcome that the scripture provides. And this is the point that is most important. It gives you completeness. The scriptures are able to make you complete. In other words, not missing or lacking anything. Nothing. There's nothing else, Paul says, that you need to progress in the Christian life. Nothing else that you need to know the right, to know the wrong, to fix the wrong, and to stay on the right path. Nothing other than the scriptures. They make you complete and they equip you. You don't even need anything beyond the scriptures to to do the right things, to train you to do the right things. The scriptures are everything. And and while we could go elsewhere in scripture for these same ideas and concepts, Paul's words to Timothy here in 2 Timothy chapter 3 are are the most condensed and, and powerful expression of something that we have come to call the sufficiency of scripture. You ever heard that phrase used before? We talk about the scriptures being sufficient. Okay, this is what Paul is describing here. Uh, uh, What do we mean when we talk about the sufficiency of scripture? Well, to put it simply, we mean that the scriptures are sufficient, that they are enough for everything that you need as a believer. And the emphasis here is on the word everything. For everything you need to know about God, or about the Christian life, you can find it in the scriptures. For everything you need to be as a minister of the gospel, as a man, as a woman, as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, a child, a worker, whatever, a citizen, everything you need to know about any of those things, it's in scripture. Everything that you need to do to please God and to live a life that's worthy of the gospel, to to make him happy every single day, every last detail of it is found in the scriptures. That's what we mean when we talk about the sufficiency of scripture, that it is enough for all of those things. It's enough for everything we need as believers. Otherwise, how can verse 17 be true? Either Paul is right that scripture and scripture alone is enough to make us complete and equipped for every good work, or it's not, and you need something else. It's a very simple concept. It's black and white. Either Paul's words in verses 16 and 17 are true, or they are not. But if Paul is right, then I don't need anything but God's word to direct my life, to teach me what's right, show me what's wrong, correct what's wrong, and keep me on the right path. Either everything we need is here, or it's not. You believe it, or you don't. And it's this issue, this very issue, that is really at the root of Montanus's heresy. Remember what Montanus claimed to be? He claimed to be the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit here on earth. He claimed to be receiving new and different revelation and information that he could pass on to the rest of the people from God. Uh, well, Montanus had the scriptures. He did. But you know what? It wasn't enough for him. Not for his followers either. They wanted more and other and newer and different information. They did not want to stay put at where they began. 
they wanted to move on. And once they had opened the door to those desires, uh, it led them down all, all kinds of weird paths. For example, you already know about some of their crazy prophecies, but they, they also became known for practicing a whole bunch of weird kind of ascetic uh, things. You know, if you're going to be a believer in Jesus, you can't do this, you have to do this. They established a whole set of rules and laws. Not only that, but they began to pursue spiritual gifts and spiritual experiences apart from the scriptures. Some have even called them the first uh, charismatic movement, the first expression of the charismatic movement as we think of it today. Now, in all fairness, charismatic historians and theologians would differ on that designation. Some would completely deny it. Others would, a few, very few, would completely accept it. Most of them try to treat Montanus like a buffet. That's how I, I tend to think of it. They like to look at Montanus and say, well, I'll take this and I'll take that, but I kind of want to ignore the fact that the New Jerusalem was descending and the world was ending. You know, you, they want to pick and choose what they like and leave, leave the rest. So it just depends on who you're reading. Personally, I would say he probably is the first expression of the modern charismatic movement, but that is perhaps a different discussion for another time. All you need to understand is that once he had opened the doors for revelation other than the scriptures, the sky was the limit. Once he had opened the doors uh, uh, for something other than the scriptures and the scriptures alone to make him complete, he and his followers, it was just you know, a matter of their imagination, what they wanted to be or do, whatever they found helpful in the Christian life. Now, it is very easy for us at this point to stop and be like, well, I'm glad we're not like him, you know. Glad we're not like Montanus just making stuff up and, and you know, we, we hold to the scriptures. And probably for the vast majority of you in this room, you would affirm that. You would sit here and say, if I asked you a question, if you're, you know, we're going to ordain you to ministry or somehow and we're going to go through a doctrinal exam, I'll say, do you believe that that the only revelation for God today is the 66 books of the Old New Testament? You're like, oh yeah, I believe it. You believe God is giving more revelation? No, I don't believe that. Okay, great, wonderful. Um, Montanus is an easy target for us. However, I would pretty much be willing to bet my life, and I'm not being facetious at all, I would pretty much be willing to bet my life that almost every person in this room has a little bit of Montanus in them. Some, maybe a little more than others. We may not be making um, authoritative prophecies like he did, we may not even uh, always be claiming to uh, be the mouth of God in particular circumstances, but I have found that many, many people are closet montanists, and they don't even know it. I'll give you two examples. One, I was listening to K-Love this week, don't judge me, and uh, it was morning time, and, and dumb Kinkle Fritz, or I don't know, what's his stupid name? I, it's so dumb. They're, they're talking about uh, the encouraging story of the day. Okay, so it's the encouraging story of the daytime. And I only heard the lead-in to it. I didn't actually get to hear the story itself, but the lead-in was about a woman who had called in who God had told her to go talk to her neighbor, and you're going to find out what happened next. Now, without hearing any more of the story, let's just think that one through for a second here. God told her? Oh, in what, what book was that in? I don't... Oh, no, it probably wasn't in the Bible. God just simply told her she heard God's voice in her head, so she's going to go do it. You do realize that if God is speaking to you in your mind, that's extra revelation? You do realize that, right? Just if God speaks to you apart from the Scriptures, if you're hearing voices in your head, you might have other issues. But at the very least, 
you're, you're claiming to have revelation apart from God. And he said, well, she's kind of weird. That sounds weird. I probably have said that, but wouldn't say it ever again now. I know better at this point. Um, how about a secondary example? I can't tell you in the past eight and a half, nine years now at Cornerstone, how many people have come to me at various points with various decisions, various issues, and they said, Stacey, I, I really feel, you know, like God wants me to do this. And I try, I'm not consistent with this, but I try, but great, what, what passage of scripture did that come from? And I'm not trying to be a jerk when I do that. I'm trying to simply ask a real question. And like, you know, is there a biblical concept? Is there something, something from God's word involved at any point in this process where you feel like God really wants you to do this or that? And, and honestly, I can't remember a time where I ever got a yes answer to that question. I'm not saying it hasn't happened. I just have forgotten it if it did. It's amazing to me how often people are willing to attribute things to God wanting them to do or be this. And normally the answer back is, no, we just really feel it. We feel that God wants us to do this or that. Do you recognize that both of those examples are, to some degree or another, whether a lot or a little, expressions of montanism, of receiving revelation from God about this or that apart from the scriptures? And it raises a very practical set of questions for us as believers as we think about how to navigate the Christian life. For example, you know, how exactly does God speak to us today? You hear people talk about this, God really spoke to me. And, you know, well, how does God really speak to us today? Well, far too many of us are looking for a feeling or an experience to give us some sense that God is speaking to us, even though God has very clearly chosen to speak to us through his word. You have 66 books of God's words to you. Is that not enough? Do, do, what are you looking for? Are you looking to be taught? Can't the scriptures teach? Are you looking to be corrected? Don't they correct, reprove? Are you looking to know how to fix things in your life? Won't they fix them? Are you looking how to stay on the right path? Won't it? Didn't Paul say all of that right there, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? Did he make that very clear? So what exactly are you looking for when you say you want God to speak to you? Are the scriptures not enough? Well, well does God even really speak directly to us? Is that even how it works today, I would say no. Not in the sense that Montanus or the Lady on Caleb or, or others mean. And yet God very clearly does speak directly to us in his word. I'm going to sound like a broken record for a few minutes. Give me a little pass here. He speaks directly to you every time you open the scriptures. Every time someone stands up and opens God's words to you and proclaims it to you, it's the word of God to you. It is God speaking directly to you, teaching you, helping you. I don't know what you're, what you're looking for. I was just sharing with someone this week. Uh, the spirit of God, you know how he works in us? Through the word. The spirit of God works through the word of God. I sometimes quote that to myself. I probably, if you walked into my office and saw me doing that, you would think I was crazy. I'm like, spirit works through the word. Spirit of God works through the word of God. Spirit of God works through the word of God. Because it's helpful for me to just sit there and remind myself sometimes that the Spirit of God doesn't work apart from the Word. The Spirit of God brings the Scriptures to mind. He applies them. He, he uses them to convict us, to change us. The Spirit works through the Word. The Spirit works through the Word. The Spirit works through the Word. Folks, the Spirit does not work apart from the Word. We've been given the Word of God and the Spirit of God so that God could change us, but the two do not work separately. 
They work together. And when you begin to separate the Spirit of God from the Word of God, you are opening Pandora's box, and it is hard to close it afterwards. You become a Montanist. Well, then, exactly how do we know what God wants us to do? You know, when moments come up, and, and I'm praying, how do I know God's will and this or that? Um, the Scriptures? Uh, you know, I'm always intrigued by the fact that people will say to me, and I'll say it too, I'm, I'm not above this, you know, I really want to know God's will on this or that. Should I do this? Should I, should I take that job? Should I buy that house? Should I do this? You know, whatever the case may be. I want to know God's will. And I'm like, okay, great. Um, are you following everything he laid out for you in 66 books right now? Well, I haven't really been in my Bible lately. <laughs> oh, so you're expecting God to give you some great direct revelation about your one decision that's important to you when you are purposefully, knowingly ignoring his revealed will written in his word? You laugh, but it's not really that funny because we've all done it. I want God to, to show me his desires, his will for this area, but, but I know I'm sitting over here and I don't really care. Why would God ever make those other things clear when he's made so much clear already and we've done diddly squat with it? Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul says to the Colossians, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. And we're like, yes, that's what I want. I want to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. But we miss the very next words, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Please tell me where you get spiritual wisdom and understanding from the scriptures. You want to be filled with the knowledge of God's will? You should be saturating yourself in God's word. Otherwise, don't tell me you want to know it when you're purposely ignoring the revealed will of God found in the Bible. Don't tell me you want to live a life that pleases him when you're, you're not even in the scriptures. You're a montanist. Well, well, Stacey, could God lead us or direct us apart from his word? Yeah, I have to say yes and no. I'll say yes and explain and then clarify why I'm also saying no. For example, uh, I'll take the issue of desires. People often talk about what they want, what they feel, etc. To me, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to cut here because I'm going over. Um, it's interesting that as you look in 1 Timothy chapter 3, these are the qualifications for being a pastor. What is the first and foundational qualification of being a pastor according to Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3? It's the issue of desire. If anyone desires the office of an overseer, he desires a good thing. Meaning, if you don't have a desire for it, we're not even, going, <laughs> we're not even considering it. If you don't have that desire, then it's not, even, it's not even a discussion, okay? However, notice then that desire is not the end of the conversation. Your desire is then checked by a series of qualifications by the church who, uh, of which you're a part to know whether or not your desires are, are even right from the Lord. So understand here, just as an example, and I'm, I'm going to leave some other things out, the desires do not trump everything else in the will of God. Desires may be a place in which God works. Uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that God actually works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So God does sometimes give us desires, but desires are not a trump over everything else. Secondly, God often works through circumstances, right? How many times did Paul pray for deliverance from jail or pray to go into a particular area and God just didn't let it happen? Did that stop him? Did that change his plans? Did it make him not a minister then? No, if he stayed in jail, then he ministered to the prisoners. If he got out of jail, he went and ministered to the people. It didn't, 
He allows God to direct his path one way or the other through these circumstances, but even then the circumstances aren't the most important thing. Folks, whether it's desires, circumstances, none of that ever will go against the word of God and all of it has to be subservient to the scriptures. Look, when it comes to knowing and doing the will of God, this isn't a a big complicated thing. Here, here are four things that you should do to not be like Montanus. Okay, you don't want to be like him. Let me give you four. Okay, real simple. First, if this applies to you, and it hopefully will not apply to everyone in the room, but I bet it will apply to a few more than I would like to know. If this applies to you, stop saying and believing that God tells you to do things apart from his word. If you believe that, stop it. It's a lie. God has spoken to you through his word. Maybe if you can quote the entire Bible to me, I might start believing you. But until you get to that point, no. All right? Second, for those who aren't in the first camp, stop blaming God or using him as an excuse for the things you already want to do. Okay? Because this happens sometimes, right? People, uh, Frank, I remember he said it so well after a particular situation we went through together. He said, it's amazing to me. I'm not going to quote him probably exactly right, but I've never forgotten the gist. He goes, it's amazing to me how God never calls people to less, um, uh, I forgot the wording, uh, and he never calls people into worse circumstances. You never see people go, you know, I think God's calling me to a smaller house or a lower paying job or a church where I have to serve more. Never. Whenever God calls people, it's always to an improvement. Isn't that amazing? Um, there's a great uh, uh, website called the Babylon Bee. If you're familiar with The Onion, it is a, a satirical news site. Babylon Bee is like a Christian satirical news site, and they have really funny stories. And one of their headlines the other week was, uh, everything local man feels led to do, he coincidentally really likes. <laughs> That's how it works. Most people who come to you and say, I feel like God wants me to do this, or I feel led to do that, it's what they already wanted to do in the first place. Why not just be honest and stop blaming God for it? You know why people often do that? Here's my own cynical opinion. People do it that way because once they say God wants them to do it, you can't argue. I mean, who are you? <laughs> I'm like, oh, God wants you to I, Who am I to tell you no? Uh, stop it. <laughs> Third, if you are really interested, I mean really interested in hearing from God and knowing what he wants you to do. If this is like a big thing to you and you're like, well, Stacy, you're blowing my mind right now. I mean, I can't. If you really are serious about that, well, then uh, you should give yourself to the scriptures. You should saturate yourself in them. You should be reading them, memorizing them, meditating on them, listening to them nonstop. Again, when you get to that point, and then I might believe you on other things. Until then, don't come to me with any of your other things. Fourth and finally, for everything else, just listen to Augustine's advice. I love this quote. It's well known. Augustine said, love God and do as you please. I mean, just think about this. If you are genuinely loving God, you're pursuing him, you want to make him be the, the greatest pleasure, possession, and pride of your life, you love him in that way, then just do what you want because you'll be doing right anyway. And God will be directing you, protecting you. Take a step. Be humble. Bathe things in prayer. But my goodness, don't be... Don't be hemmed in by fear. Look, Montanus is one of the earliest examples of someone who did not believe that the scriptures were enough for the Christian life. He is not the last. Most of us in this room struggle with this too. And I fear that many of us are little Montanus without even realizing. But folks, we've been given a source. We've been given the word of God. Let's just be faithful to it and really believe in the sufficiency of scripture. Will you bow your heads? 
Father, I don't know if I've done this justice. I, I was simply hoping that this morning you would make it very clear to us how, even though we often give lip service to the sufficiency of Scripture, practically speaking, we do not follow through on it. We wait for feelings and experiences and signs and weird things sometimes that when you have given us 66 books of your revealed will, what more can we want or need? You have told us that everything we need is here. It makes us complete and equipped for every good work. We either believe this or we don't. And I know we, many of us in here do, but we're just not consistent. Sometimes we're either drawn away by our past uh, teachings in life or just by our own flesh, our own sin, to want more and other and better and different. But as you told Timothy, there's nothing to move on to. <laughs> this is it. We need to stay put. There's so many other things in life we need to move on from, but not your word. We need to stay put here and not be like Montanus. And so I pray that Cornerstone and the people that make up this church would be like that, that we will truly believe in your word, its sufficiency, and will saturate ourselves in it every single day and attempt to live out what you have made abundantly clear. Not worry about the other things as you will direct us and you will protect us and you are the Father who always gives us bread. And so we love you, Jesus. We love you for giving us your word, helping us know your will. Help us to live it in Jesus' name. Amen.